Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 5 as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 5. Jesus begins to call his disciples, and he comes with power. Luke 5 and verse 1. Let's read of a passage that is somewhat well-known to many of us. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that is, the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Ralph Davis, who is a gifted pastor theologian and a friend of our congregation, describes in his commentary on 2 Samuel a rather humorous preacher story. There's the legend of a young preacher who announced his Bible text to his congregation. It was taken from Revelation chapter 22, and it was this simple statement, Behold, I come. And when he had announced that text and spoken it to his congregation, his mind went blank and there was nothing else to follow. So he repeated his text again, Behold, I come hoping for light, but there was no light. So in desperation, he leaned against the pulpit and he textualized with more gusto and he said, behold, I come. At which point the pulpit broke off from its moorings and fell down into the front row and he into the lap of a woman nearest him. The embarrassed preacher apologized profusely, but the woman refused his blame and wanted to take the blame upon herself. She said, no, 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 sir. I should have been prepared. You told me three times that you were coming. <laughs> well, it wasn't so humorous, but it was just as well announced. Jesus had said again and again that he was coming. The prophets had announced his coming. Look back to verse 43 and 44 of the prior chapter. 
You hear Dr. Luke say of Jesus, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For this purpose I was sent. Jesus came announcing his coming. He was proclaiming that in himself the good news of the kingdom of God was breaking in. He had been saying in the synagogues of the Jews, Behold, I come. Well, in our passage, Jesus does come, but he comes with not only his word, he comes with power. He comes with the working of a wonder in the midst of his disciples, and he comes calling his disciples to himself. Well, there are three lessons, three truths that I want us to grasp with our hearts this morning concerning both Christ and ourselves. So with the heart of faith and a heart of humility and independence upon the Holy Spirit, let's jump into the text together. In the first place this morning, we must humble ourselves to be eager to hear every word of Christ that he would speak. And he is always willing to feed the hungry soul. You and I must be eager and humble to hear every word of Christ, every word that he would speak to us, and he is always ready to feed the hungry soul. Look at the language of verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing into him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake. And so getting into one of the boats, verse 3, he asked to be put out a bit, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Well, in chapter 4, Jesus is teaching and preaching throughout the towns and the synagogues. But here, as chapter 5 begins, his pulpit is the lakeside. And as the crowds begin to gather, as they begin to press in on him, he sees that the best way to preach to the greatest number of people is to get into one of the boats, push out a bit from the shore, have the reflective water to be able to amplify his voice, and without those pressed right up against him to speak freely and to speak boldly. But Luke tells us the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. It's no wonder, is it, that this is the Lord God eternal. This is the eternal Son of God in our flesh speaking the gospel to people who had never heard it in this language. Listen to what the Apostle John tells us of Christ, of this Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, you finish it with me, was God. Who's speaking? The living God. He's speaking in our flesh to a multitude of people. The living Word is speaking the truth. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of God, full of what? Grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And then John says this, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, hungry souls were pressing in, hungry Jewish souls were pressing in to hear this proclamation of Jesus. You see, they had only heard vague future promises of deliverance from Roman oppression. 
All they knew was a corrupt understanding of the Old Testament law and prophets. All that they had heard was the thunder of the law, but nothing of true grace. And here is truth and grace embodied and fleshed in the eternal Son of God, proclaiming boldly to these people. The final prophet, the eternal Son, pouring out this free grace upon grace, that the Father was reconciling people to himself in the very one who was making the proclamation. Now hang with me and make a shift in your mind's eye. Do you believe that the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord at the right hand of God the Father is just as much in this moment, in this hour, in this day, preaching his gospel as he was at that lakeside. Even though we are not there in that moment, the living God, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his glorified flesh, through his spirit and by his word, is right now, right here in this place, preaching His word just as truly and just as powerfully as when he spoke at that lakeside on that day. Do you believe that we, like they did, ought to be pressing in to hear every word that our Lord Jesus Christ would speak? Now let's be honest. Isn't it true that sometimes we come to morning worship, to evening worship, to any form of corporate worship, and we come with our minds elsewhere, we come wanting to be entertained, we come believing that the musicians, that the pastors, that it is their job to do something for us, rather than our job to come And to behold the living Christ as he proclaims his word to us. The Son of God is always eager and willing and able to feed a hungry soul. So dear ones, in morning and evening worship, in our singing, I hope you often recognize, even though it's printed in the bulletin, that we sing the Psalms back to the Lord We're taking the Lord's own word and singing it back to him as praise. We're teaching and instructing our own hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit in the language of the scriptures. In our Sunday schools, our Bible studies, at Christ's Covenant School, in personal scripture study, in accountability groups, through a host of the means of grace, Christ, as it were, is still sitting in the boat preaching and teaching his word to his people. He's preaching the depth of his forgiving grace to the humbled, hungry, believing soul that presses into his breast. Would you ask yourself an honest question? When was the last time you pressed in to the breast of Jesus? You pressed into him and you said, Lord, teach me. Give me your heart. Teach me your ways. Teach me of your unfailing love. Restore my heart. 
encourage my broken soul. When did you last press in to Christ? So how long would it take then if you left corporate worship this morning and never took another bite of food for you to pass away? Two weeks, perhaps, at the outside. Without water, even shorter than that. So let me ask this, or or perhaps to put it this way. Your soul can no more live without the bread of Christ and the word of Christ than you could be alive a month from now if you ever never ate another morsel. You see, some of you this morning are wonderfully strong and vibrant. You're healthy of soul because you feast on Christ and his sacred words day upon day upon day, week by week. But some of us are malnourished. Some of us are sick because we only pick at the banquet table of God. You see, when you go to a banquet and a great feast, there's so much food that you begin to pick and to choose, as it were, of the things that you like and the things that you don't like. But if your survival depended upon what was put in front of you, wouldn't you eat it all? That's what God's word is meant to be for us. That banquet is meant to be for our very life and survival. Some are healthy, some are sick and malnourished, and some are dying. Starving to death slowly or quickly, as the case may be, because you have bought the lie that you can do without the bread of life. And your very life right now is proving by virtue of your sickness and death. In our text, we are told that people were pressing into Christ and that he sat down on the boat and that he spoke to them and he taught and he preached himself and his own gospel. And Jesus is doing the very same thing in this moment. And we are to press into Christ. And we are to hear the word of the Lord. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We must humble our hungry souls and be eager to feast on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But in the second place in our text this morning, we need to humbly learn that in the miraculous catch of fish... You and I are called to marvel at our holy Lord and at the same time to learn much of who we are. We're called to marvel at our holy God and to learn much of who we are. You know, it is common in a passage like this to focus on the miracle itself and say, isn't this a remarkable thing that Jesus did? And there is a place for that. But that's really not at all the focus of the text. The miracle leads in its power to conclusions far more deeply than the miracle itself. When Jesus had finished preaching, 
He surprised these weary professional fishermen who had caught nothing all night by saying, put out, put out into the deep and drop your nets. We're told that Simon answered in verse 5, Master. I want you to notice something very quickly. The word in the original language for master here is something like the idea of captain of the boat or, or captain. But later on, his confession turns to the word Lord. And there's a fundamental transition that takes place. But he says, Master, it's daytime. We're the fishermen here. It's the wrong time to fish. The fish can sense and see the nets coming in the daylight. Lord, we were, we were struggling all night. We didn't catch a thing, Lord. And we're weary. We're going to finish mending and washing our nets. We're going to go home and rest, and then we'll come back at it tonight. But you know, Lord, because you've asked, we'll let down the nets. I wonder if you were there or I was there, how reluctantly we would let down those nets or perhaps not at all. Have you ever thought that their failure to catch any fish the night before was just as sovereign an act of Christ as was the miraculous catch during the morning? The Lord kept them from catching a single fish the night before so that on this day, this miraculous catch would produce all of his intended desires. The contrast would prove the point. And so when the great haul of fish comes in and one boat begins to be swamped and the nets are breaking and the partner's boat is brought in and two boats begin to swamp, when Simon Peter begins to get his wits about him, what does he do? Look at the language of the scripture Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, the great catch of fish opened Simon Peter's heart to the majesty and the beauty and the holiness and the power and the uniqueness and the honor the purity of Christ. And by that light, he saw his own heart for what it was, impure, self-centered, willful, rebellious, in need of cleansing forgiveness. The great John Calvin, one of the wonderful reformers of the 1500s, by the age of 29, wrote the first draft of his great work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the greatest works ever written. And in it, one of the famous lines is this, no one ever attains clear knowledge of himself unless he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord. You see, the Lord opened Simon Peter's eyes to see him in his glory that he might know himself as he truly was. So in the text, the spoken word of Christ as he was preaching and the miraculous catch of fish combined to slay Simon's heart and that of his fellows with who they really were. 
and that they were in the presence of a holy God himself. And so what was Simon's reaction? He fell down in shameful humiliation. You know, it is common in the psychological world today for professionals to tell us that we should never, ever experience shame because of its damaging effects. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Shame is a God-given response to the wickedness of our own lives when we see the majesty and holiness of God. Peter was not falling apart in psychological disruption. He was finally, for the first time ever, coming to know himself as he truly was. Instinctively, he asked the Lord to go away because he was unworthy to be in the presence of Christ. He began to see his wicked heart. He began to understand that he had broken every command of God, that his impurity was now plain and his guilt and shame were clear. At some level, every one of us in this room who claims to be a Christian has to have had this kind of true, genuine experience with Christ. This is fundamental to what it means to be a believer. And it remains the lifelong heartbeat of the growing believer that the Son of God is unalterably pure and holy and you and I are not. Until the day you hit heaven, that will never change. Earlier in our worship, we read from Isaiah 6, and there are deep parallels between that passage and ours. The holy grandeur of God comes into view in both passages. And when that grandeur and, and holiness of God is exposed, you might think that there would come this extraordinary, raw, terrifying damaging destruction. But no, what we rather find is intimate, kind mercy and blessing. Think of the Isaiah 6 passage. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up as the throne of heaven is filled with the glory of God. And in response to that, he says, woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Luke 5, the miraculous catch of the Lord. Simon sees the Lord for who he is, high and exalted as the Lord over all of creation, as the holy God in the boat. And he says, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinner. Isaiah 6, the angel cleanses Isaiah's mouth with a coal from the altar. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Now go as my mouthpiece. Luke 5, in the moment of Simon's greatest realization of who he is, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I commission you as a fisher of men. Such great parallels. The uncreated holy God meets the sinful creature and the reaction is universal. 
we learn something of the lifelong lesson of the Christian experience, that the more deeply we know the Lord for who he is, the more deeply we will know and feel our own impurity of heart and our own unworthiness to be in his presence. The most mature believer, whoever he or she may be, still in the deepest moments of nearness to the Lord, will feel that without the undeserved grace of God, we are nothing before his face. So let me ask you, have you ever stared down the holy presence and power of Jesus Christ like Simon has and been truly broken by Christ? The greater our soul's sight of divine majesty, the deeper that light will shine into the cesspool that is my heart and yours. But you see, that's good news. How would we ever know about nor care about grace if that were not true? The principle of the Christian life is that as God reveals more and more of himself to us and more and more of ourselves to ourselves, it is both shattering and liberating in the same moment. One of our great scholars has used that line, and I have taken it from him, shattering because our true sense of the Lord and ourselves has exploded, and we see that we we don't deserve a single thing from his hand, but liberated in the sense that in the midst of who we truly are, we are welcomed, accepted, forgiven, and covered by the righteousness and the blood of Christ in a way that we can't even yet imagine. So the you and I were not present at that powerful scene for this display of Christ's power and holiness. It is recorded for us in sacred scripture, and that means this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is right this minute speaking to each and every one of us as he spoke to those crowds at the lakeside on that day. No less so in this moment than then. You and I are brought before the Holy One, the master of all of creation who made us and who knows every intimate place within us. He controls every fish in the oceans. And in the perfect contrast between his purity, his power, and our impurity and our impotency, in that contrast, what the King of kings and the Lord of lords says to each of us this morning is, will you, like Simon, fall before me and say, Lord, get away from me. I am unworthy of your presence. I'm a sinful man, a sinful woman, a sinful child. But thanks be to God that the passage does not end there, nor does our sermon end there. In the last place this morning, I want you to see by faith, by the grasp of your heart, that we're to enter into the joy of divine acceptance 
And that that divine acceptance propels us into ministry as undeserving as we are. Look at verse 10, the second half, and verse 11. And Jesus said to Simon. So I want you to see the contrast. Verse 8, Simon speaks, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Verse 10, Jesus now speaks. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Would they in that moment have followed one that they were terrified of? Of course not. You see, in the very same moment that Simon came to confess his wicked unworthiness, he hears from the mouth of the Holy One, Do not be afraid. Now, it's hard to see in our English, but in the original language, the verb is in the imperative. It's a command. Jesus says to Simon, Simon, though everything that you have just learned about yourself is true, and everything that you are experiencing about me as the Holy One, full of mighty power, is true, fear not, Simon. You are mine and you are forgiven. In these words, the Lord is putting before us the gospel in shorthand. Now, for those of you who are younger, <laughs> you don't know what that means. Shorthand is something that people used to be able to do and almost no one can do anymore. Someone would speak and there was a way of writing symbols and brief connected letters that stood for whole words and whole phrases and someone could listen to someone talk and write it down rapidly. Shorthand. This is the gospel in shorthand. This is the gospel before the full flower of Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and reign from heaven. Before all of those facts were fully clear, this is the gospel in shorthand. Let me put it this way in the language of Jesus to Simon. Simon, I make you mine by my forgiving love. I receive you. Do not live in terror of me anymore. Your sinfulness is covered and I dress you in a righteousness that is my own. And I give it to you freely. Simon, I equip you by my forgiving love. By the cross that you will see in three short years, I equip you to be my servant. To follow me and to serve my kingdom. Simon, you are mine with all of your fallenness of heart and all of your wicked flaws. I've purchased your life. Simon, this miraculous catch of fish points to the miraculous catch of my grace in which you have been caught up and now live forever. What a remarkable, simple, profound, life-changing pronouncement of grace. Simon, I don't throw away sinners. I humble them and I welcome them into my kingdom's service. And I fill their souls to bursting with my unmerited kindness. That's the kind of Savior we serve. 
So as we close, do you see that you have a place at Simon's side? Can you put your name in this story and remove Simon's from it? Can you step into his sandals and into his boat and realize that the same is true of you? Deserving that Jesus should depart from you, but humbled by divine forgiveness and caught up in the net of his abundant grace, that we're accepted and equipped to serve as his ambassadors. Though these words were spoken to Simon in particular in a day and specific place in time, they were also spoken through the apostles who are being called that day to the church as a whole for the rest of the generations of the church. We are called, as Simon was, to believe that we are to fear not and that we have been made catchers of men. That we are to put away our fear of the consequence, as it were, of all of our wickedness and to know that we have been forgiven and that we are his. You've heard us say this before, but what's happening in this moment is Simon is beginning to understand for the first time how deeply broken he is. That he will learn for the rest of his life that there's more yet to his brokenness that he understands. I didn't have the time to do it, but go this afternoon on the Lord's Day to John chapter 21, where after the resurrection, the disciples are scattered and, John, uh, and Simon Peter and several of the other disciples are now fishing again. And there's a man on the shore that calls to them and says, have you caught any fish? And the answer is no. And the man says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And they have a great catch of fish. And Simon declares, it is the Lord. And different than in this passage where he says, Lord, get away from me, Simon he puts on his clothing again because in the day of the ancient Near East, you didn't go to someone who was your superior naked. You clothed yourself. He jumps in the water and he swims to the shore. And Jesus has fish on a fire. The disciples breakfast with Jesus. And then Jesus restores Simon Peter in a remarkable way. Three denials Peter made. Three times Jesus says, feed my sheep. We are the very same. We need to put our fear away that our sin has been covered and to know that we are his and that we've been commissioned to serve as a kingdom ambassador. Let me close with these questions. Where in your life do you need to see the Son of God Draw near to you both in his holiness and power and with his transformational forgiveness. Where in your relationships, in your home, in your singleness, in the marketplace, 
with a husband, with a wife, with a child, with a friend, with a neighbor? Where does this holy power of Jesus Christ and his transformational forgiveness need to radically change your life? Where does the humbling holiness of Christ need to be welcomed so that your heart is both shattered and liberated at the same time? And where must you be brought like Simon to life-changing levels of deep dependence and trust. May the Holy Spirit do his business with each of us who are present this morning. Let's pray. Father, it seems like so long ago in, in a different world, to think that we could have been in a boat with our Lord Christ. But we still are in our boat, the boat of our own lives. And you still are present with us in that boat. And your majesty and your purity, your goodness and your everlasting kindness, all wrapped into one have become ours. Now by it again, degree by degree, we plead with you, change us and grow us and use us. And we ask it for the honor of your name.